My great-grandfather probably came from Hamburg. Uh, the family was originally Swiss, I think, went to Germany, and then for two generations was in Holland. And he was a lithographer in Amsterdam. And his son did some graphic design. I only read about this later, so maybe there's a little something in the genes. But they, uh, they were such wonderful people, and I lived in London. I got to go to the British Museum. I was a block and a half from the Victoria and Albert Museum. So I worked as an usher in a cinema. I walked to and from for hours every day because I had no money. But I got to see the Book of Kells, which totally turned me around. It was the first time ever outside Ireland. And there it was, and they would turn a page every week, and I had a season pass. And I've never seen anything quite like it. Why were you in England to start with? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I was fairly shy, certainly didn't fit in very well, uh, but I became just totally enamored of letter forms without understanding what they were about, without understanding that there probably was some kind of graphic background yes. in my Dutch family. When I started to, uh, going to OCA, I um, was able to use some board equipment, and I printed my first book, December 1962, January 1963. You started your press pretty well as soon as you went to college then. Yeah. I was looking for a um, hand press. I got a little Adana table model, which uh, the area of the chase was 5 by 8 inches. Mm -hmm. So if you printed a small, small page, you could just barely print one page at a time. Mm -hmm. And the printing was absolutely atrocious. <laughs> I didn't know that there were things like rollers that had to be recast. Right. I knew nothing at all about printing. You knew something. I knew that I wanted to print. It was yeah. just this intense desire. And I, I got a font of type, a 12-point bamboo, with Roman and italic and small caps. And that gave me the opportunity to really learn what you could do with just one typeface with those very few variants. And then gradually I got some other type. So what yeah. could you do? Well, you just learned to really appreciate what every single letter could do because there was no distraction. How much could you design with a font of 12-point type using Roman italic and small caps? You learned to letter space the uh, small caps. You learned to mix characters. I think I did a terrible job with every alternate character in a line in italic. <laughs> okay. But it was a wonderful experience because you, you taught yourself basically all the potential in a, a few letter forms. I should say that there was a typography course at OCA and that's what really what I was going for but everything was Swiss grid, Helvetica, very very contemporary, very European. Not a lot of interest in classic European typography but there was a very good library and I read everything that I could possibly get my hands on. So by the time I left OCA, I had some very slight inkling of what typographic design might be. At that point, I'd already been doing a few books and a few small broadsides and things and starting to buy some type when I could afford it. Stan Bevington and I shared the cost of uh, a small font of ornaments. <laughs> and Stan and I were able to trade a little with each other once I got some more type. So uh, Stan was an incredible influence on me as far as um, experimentation was concerned. 
everybody that I knew was hanging out at Stan's coach house, and it was a very rich time in the early 60s. What would you say that it was about the early 60s? Because there is an explosion, certainly in Canadian uh, book design in general, Mm. and I think of that period, say late 50s to maybe 63, 64. Mm. Those years, for example, were Frank Neufeld's most productive. It's incredible what he came out with during those years. Yeah. I think there was a very strong typographic explosion coming from New York. The advertising was amazing. Uh, Lou Dorfman, Saul Bass, movie credits, The Man with the Golden Arm. People were using letter forms like they'd never used them before. Somehow in Canada, I think publishing companies were waking up to the fact that they needed designers. That's how Frank was selling himself. Also, and I'm not, I'm not denigrating Frank in any way, mm. there were other designers like Alan Fleming, mm. Leslie Smart, whom I worked with, who had a very strong British sense of correct design, but was also doing really weird and wonderful things. One of the teachers I had at OCA was Frank Davies. So there was, there was a nice balance. Uh, Stuart Ash was, was, of course, doing very strong advertising, Gottschalk and Ash. There was a a real sense, I think, of the power that the letter form had and how it could create moods, create emotion, answer questions, ask questions. In a way, there's a bit of a renaissance now, but it's quite different because we've gone away from the rigidity of type forms because of the fluidity of digital typesetting to the attempt to recreate handwritten forms. Every time you turn on uh, your TV set and you see ads, they're all using, in some cases, quite wonderful uh, scrawly forms and all the rest. We've gone from the grunge typography of maybe five or ten years ago to some quite nice forms. And the one typeface that keeps coming up are the Trajan caps of Carol Twombly. We used in almost every movie ad, in most book jackets. We need the Roman capitals as our basis somehow, it seems to me. And if we didn't need them, nobody would would be using that font so much. It's a very, very well-designed font, but it gives us that basis. Well, let's go back to 62. Please. So you set up your press at the same time you were a student, and through trial and error and a lot of reading and the influence of some well-known instructors, you got to a point where, where what? What happened? After I did my third book, and I did a couple of really terrible books at the beginning. What was the very first book, incidentally? The very first book that I did, uh, because I took a creative writing course when I was in London, it was a very small book called A Bach Fugue. And it was a very, very short, short, short story by one of my uh, classmates. And she wrote sparingly and beautifully about the importance of art in our lives. I still love it. It was very, the design was very derivative, and I did some terrible things. I showed uh, the copy to Carl Dare, whom I knew slightly, and he totally tore it to shreds, and rightly so. (laughs) That got to the point where I was working with words. I had the power to control my life, my destiny, by making books, by printing words. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you probably have found with people like Margaret Locke, and perhaps some other private printers you've, you've interviewed, there is this in, sense of empowerment, and it, it's almost an obsession. Because you can make these things, and you're yeah. making them for yourself. You mm-hmm. really are. And I, I think if you're a good private printer, you are. And I'd like to think I'm a good private printer. I don't care who sees them. I don't care who buys them. I want to take this text. It's like orchestrating from an open score. You choose the instruments. You choose the materials in this case. 
it took me years to use good materials because I couldn't afford anything else. Mm. I would just use offcuts and whatever I could scrounge. But you use the best materials. You make sure that the orchestra that you're dealing with has full of strats. <laughs> and then you put the best damn binding you can on it and make the binding say something about the book so that anybody picking up that book, looking at it, having it in their hands will have a sense that there's something exciting happening inside. Bindings can be very tactile. I try to use materials with roughness or character or visual appeal for bindings. And very often I've been inspired by a piece of binding material or a piece of paper, thinking that's going to make the book, that's getting my mind going. Using the music analogy, you get to pick the score. That's true. (laughs) Before you do anything, or maybe it works in tandem. You you see a, a particular piece of paper... And you think, you know, that would work beautifully with this text. Something. And I may keep paper around. I have some paper that I used this year that I've had for at least 25 years. And I can't obviously have a lot of paper around. This is a small place. But I kept this paper um, from the Japanese paper place. Uh, They had a fire some years ago, and I bought some beautiful handmade Mm. Japanese paper. The color was perfect. And I thought, someday, and this year I found the perfect text... And I found the perfect typeface, beautiful wood engravings, and it all came together. In fact, I'll just go and get it. It's a little book, typeface called Fellowship, by a guy called Jim Rimmer. Yes, of course. Who just died a few years ago. And the text and the wood engravings are by Brian Kelly in Toronto. He's a very, very fine artist. But this paper has been sitting around, as I say, forever. I would say, basically... You can't do anything without a text or the potential of a text. I can certainly be inspired by paper, color, what have you. And typeface, obviously, is a major, major influence. If I look at a typeface, sometimes I think, I could, could use that for and it goes from there. The whole point, I think, of this is that it is, for me, a fun project. It's a total obsession. Yeah. And I wish I had about 40 or 50 more years knowing what I know now yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to make books. That's not going to happen. But I still love making books after, as I say, almost 50 years. And I love making books at UFC Press. Now, how long were you there for? Was this Almost 30 years. What years were those? Oh, 1969, I believe, okay. to 1998. If we're back in 1962, you've done your, your initial books... You've had them critiqued uh, harshly, perhaps. <laughs> well, only only <laughs> once, and, and in a very nice way by yeah. Carl there. I think I still have a letter somewhere. After OCA, I worked for a couple of years. I got I was married. I had a short-term uh, Canada Council grant. I went for three months to Europe. I went to the Monotype Corporation and asked a lot of questions, people like John Dreyfus. I went to the Amsterdam Type Foundry, which had an amazing library, and mm-hmm. I just looked at books and read and I stayed with one of my Dutch relatives. And so you just sort of absorbed it. Then. I absorbed, yeah, yeah, three months of absorption of whatever I could see and find in Holland, a brief bit in, in England. Meanwhile, I had no job, but I returned to Canada, and uh, miraculously, Alan Fleming interviewed me, and a few weeks later, he hired me. That was with U of T Press, yeah, okay. in its golden days. What made it as good as it was, or what defined it? I think what defined the press was a director who obviously had to uh, show responsibility to the, the, the mother, yeah. <laughs> uh, University of Toronto, probably knew that he was never going to break even, but really wanted to make University of Toronto Press an international publisher. He hired Alan Fleming, who was 
only too happy to design there, who took some personal losses because he was a very good ad man. <clears throat> and you can read all about this in Martha Fleming's articles for The Devil's Artisan. But I think there was a real sense that we are going to go places. We are going to make you know the world notice that an academic publisher can be just as good as anything. Yeah. And there was a really strong competition. I mean, you know, publishers like Macmillan and McLeod and Stewart were also really moving into the big time, I mm. think. Um, so there was just a generally good feeling. There was a strong movement that, that publishing had to really look good. Design was considered important and essential. And Alan, of course, had the right idea because he was Alan Fleming and he was going to hire the best and use the best and he was going to get the best materials and he mm. made beautiful, beautiful books. He wanted books designed by University of Toronto Press to really stand out. And Alan Fleming was a very well-trained classic designer who could stretch the limit um, in any way possible. And he had an incredible sensitivity toward books. So in a way, he was hired to be in the right place at the right time. And miraculously, I was hired to be in the right place at the right time. Right. And even though things fell apart later on, I think initially University of Toronto Press was a really good place. There were... Uh, incredibly good experiences. It was a very strong, a very good editorial department. Yeah. There were exciting manuscripts coming in. Well, Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan was two years before Alan Fleming. Well, there was the one in 62. Yeah, it was the Gutenberg Galaxy. That's right. It was designed by Harold Krushenska. And that was the beginning, I think. John Ray said, basically, we want this to look different. We want this to look good. And the design has stood up very well over the decades, it, I think. Well, the thing about the Gutenberg the Galaxy cover... There's an E on it, and it's like email. Yeah, you know, <laughs> thirty years prior to it, yeah. it's, it's extraordinary. I suppose that was E for electronic. Before we leave it, I yeah. wonder if you could tell us because you identify that period as being a golden age for the U of T Press. If there are any books that stand out for the collector, collector from the mid. 60s to the mid-70s? To the mid-70s, yeah. And there were other designers. I mean, I would like to think that I was a good horse in the stable. Anja Lingner, who came from Germany, was very, very good as a designer. Ellen Hutchinson did some good work, did a lot of really subtle things. I think for, the, uh, for us, the excitement was that we were getting books that required a lot of detail. It isn't that the books look so great, but there were a lot of detail. You know, there were tables and charts and footnotes and all sorts of problems that needed to be solved. And Alan was very good at helping to solve problems. So that, in, you know, externally there might not be a lot of cheap flash on the covers, although some of the books were really were very good. But there's a lot of, I think, intelligent, uh, subtle design inside to make all that material work. The first book that I worked on was Milton's A Mask. I designed a horizontal format with the main text on the right-hand page and the two uh, variant texts on the left. It was so complicated that it had to be done on a typewriter because they had to be underlined, diacritical marks added. It was really a challenge. One of the books that I did, too, was Prairie School Architecture, I think which I'm very, very fond of because it was a study of Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings. Again, there were some, some complicated problems there. I didn't know very much about what I was doing. <laughs> we were given the time, and we were given the option to do it well. Then, unfortunately, probably by about mid, the mid-1970s, right across Canada, I think the axe began to fall, and we had to save money. So Alan was told to design a standard format 
for all of the books, which we call standard doormat. <laughs> and this made a lot of sense, because every book could not be designed individually. It was one way of cutting costs. Unfortunately, that became the rule, so that when a book really needed special design, there was just no money for it, or money couldn't be allocated, or it wasn't considered important. There were several books that I think would have benefited from a more sensitive design approach. They were up against it in simply trying to survive. U of T Press, like many publishers, uh, had to, to uh, be accountable for a lot of its operation. It's just very unfortunate that yes. once they got into a certain mindset, it couldn't be changed and you know the dollar sign ruled, or the lack of dollar sign. Would it be fair then to say that the golden days of Canadian book design might stretch from the mid-late 50s to the early mid-70s? Probably into the 80s. And a lot of this has to do with, I think, the respect that any management has for its its employees. And I think one of the sad things in publishing and everywhere else is that if you lose the people who have the experience and the tradition, you lose the tradition. The continuity. The continuity goes. But if you have a core group and they're well-trained and they're dedicated and they're treated with respect, um, you can go a long way. We moved through that U of T uh, period. This was a big part of your career, obviously. U of T Press was an amazing part of my career. And I probably designed, ultimately, in one form or another, several thousand books wow. over okay. the 30-year period that I was there. E even if with the standard format, there were still a lot of details that had to be planned. The project that I most loved probably came near the end with the David Milne project. So um, Cox? The Silcox, yeah. Silcox just assumed that it was going to be the perfect book and he was going to do everything he could to make it so. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, the, the catalogue resume was an absolute joy to work with. The Encyclopedia of Music in Canada, the first edition, was an amazing work because of the, the detail of the entries. And because I am a great lover of music... I had to read most of it, and I could actually do some copy editing. I was reading as I went through, so I caught a few errors. Oh, Yay! <laughs> yeah, the David Milne project was a, a great way to go out. The letters of David Milne, to my knowledge, still haven't been published, and they would be an amazing, because Milne wrote beautifully. He mm. remains, in my view, you know, probably the most influential and important artist of the period. Just an incredible visionary in his way, and... Mm. I, I enjoyed that project so much. I get quite emotional about it. <laughs> because there was a budget, or a budget was found because Silcox insisted that it was going to be <laughs> done properly. Yes. Yeah, I don't know what to say about collectors and um, academic publishing. What I'm after is the books that are the most beautiful, the books that are exemplars of, of what you consider to be the best. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of book that I think collectors, you know, like to use the word should, but <laughs> might <laughs> might appreciate. I'm going to jump slightly sideways. Sure. Um, I have a very dear friend in Toronto, Tom Schweitzer, whom you may or may not know. He lived in Ottawa for many years. He's an economist. He's now about 87, and he has probably been the one person who's collected my work as uh, the Alaquando Press. He's got almost everything I've done, a few things that have never seen the light of day, you know, notes and scribbles and all of that. He also has a lot of University of Toronto Press books. If you want, wanted to talk to him, I, do. Yeah. Um, I can give you his phone sure, number. that'd be great. And ask him, ask him as a yeah. collector. Very good. Yeah.
Okay. Because I can't see it. I'm just too close. So tell us then a, a bit about the philosophy of your press. While I was at U of T Press, while all of this was going on, right to the present and hopefully into the future, I operated and continue to um, operate this silly little press, this obsession. And I think my only philosophy about it is that I want to do beautiful books, I want to do texts that appeal to me, I want to set them in beautiful types, and I'm very fortunate because I have a lot of metal type brought over many decades at a time when it's, you know, it's totally obsolete now. I have a relatively functional printing press, and I want to, to print these pages, make beautiful books, bind them in the way I'd like for myself. Unfortunately, it's also uh, necessary sometimes to, to sell a few. <laughs> and uh, so that's where I simply have no idea who's going to collect them, who's going to buy them, yes. what's happening there. Yeah. But um, if I have enough money in the bank to pay for paper, if I can scrounge ink when I need to or whatever, and very occasionally get some type, I'm perfectly happy. Okay. I've been doing this long enough now that I have some supplies. Uh, that's the philosophy. There are so many texts, I think, that deserve to be published. I just read an interesting book called The Ideal Book, The Dutch Private Press, 1910 to 2010. It's a glorious catalogue of an exhibition that was uh, shown in Holland last year, and it's astonishing what the Dutch have achieved and what their philosophies are. I mean, this all started basically, I think, in Canada and in other places because of Cobden Sanderson and William Morris, the direct influences on Dutch private printing. And I think certainly here in the 1920s, there were some commercial publishers. A Montreal publisher was doing Christmas books, and the E.B. Eddie Company did a couple of Christmas books, trying to emulate the best quality of the private press. Mm. We never really took off. Cobden Sanderson was almost evangelical about it, wasn't he? One of the books that I did that I probably am most proud of, that took me 18 months to do, is uh, excerpts from his journals. And he was evangelical. He was one of those, it's almost impossible to describe. He was mystical, he was a visionary, he believed in the purity of letter form. He, he and William Morris were very good friends. I can't even begin to go into this, but he certainly was my major hero. When I first started out, because we were both working with one typeface and one size, <laughs> only his was better than mine, and his printing was better than mine. He's been criticized for the austerity of his books, carrying things right back, not letting the designer get in the way of the text, that, to me, is one of the principles of good book design, good typography. On the other hand, with the private press, of course, you have your own personality. You want to put your mark on whatever book you do. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to always be very, very respectful of the text. It's so essential. It's a very fine line, isn't it? It really is. In one sense, you want to be invisible. You don't want to get in between the reader and, and the content. But in the other, you want to make it as beautiful and as appealing as you can. This will give you an idea. This is one of the smaller books that was published commercially. It was done by another press. I rebound it because the binding isn't that, uh, wasn't that important. And he would have had simply done a quick trade binding. But uh, you can see the importance of the austerity, even though this is not his actual book. The margins are so important because you need room for your thumbs. Thumbage. Uh, thumbage, yes. yes. <laughs> Good quality handmade paper. Totally austere design. But very readable, eh? Always very readable, and that's what it's about. And within that, 
you can have a lot of fun, but don't get in the way of the words. You're not stewards of the words. It's interesting you mentioned that austerity, because I, uh, I'm a big fan of the Veil Press. Charles Ricketts, Charles Ricketts, yeah. They were sort of a pared-down version of the Kelmscott. Kelmscott was almost over the top. It was totally. I mean, I talked about Kelmscott Press as, you know, glorified uh, rugs. A lot of Oriental, Orientalia there. Totally magnificent. Absolutely wonderful. But, uh, yeah, just a little little too much. I do have a Kelmscott book, too. Oh, and you did the binding for that, too? I did the binding, and that's paper that my Dutch great-uncle did in Amsterdam, probably about 1900. The fact that you were able to, to do something with what your ancestors had done. Talk about continuity. Yeah, I think there is something there. I mean, I have some of the, the papers that he designed. I didn't know my, my Dutch family that well, but we corresponded a lot. And there was there. There's a perfect example of the over-the-top double spread. But it, it actually works. And the type, while it's too large for the page, is very legible. You can't knock uh, William Morris. No. He was doing something that was totally his, perhaps design-wise for the wrong reasons at times, but he made unique and really beautiful books. Mm-hmm. And the pair of these, you know, these two printers, two designers, two visionaries, side by side, good friends, just changed the course of bookmaking mm-hmm. and uh, printing. There's no question. The type that I used on the spine is an American rip-off of the Chaucer type, which I could stamp on or could print on vellum for the binding. I mean, everybody was doing the, the Kelmscott thing rather badly. Albert Hubbard, a great example, but he, he also went in his own direction there, and uh, more power to him. Perhaps we could talk about why Cobden Sanderson was your hero. I think because it was so refreshing, it was so austere. Again, in the 60s, you know, ads were coming at you in every direction. TV, which I didn't have, didn't have any influence on me because television commercials were not particularly well-designed, quote-unquote. But uh, but there was a lot of visual overload. And to me, Cobb and Sanderson produced what looked to me like a good book page with good margins and all the rest of it. And, uh, of course, I went on my own direction, but I still keep coming back, which is why I did this uh, excerpts from his journals. Again, because the text was very important. The journals themselves were edited after his death, and any reference to his dispute with uh, Emery Walker was pretty well edited out. Uh, So probably only half of the original journals survived. From those... I and my friend Don Taylor edited. Don looked for book binding entries. I looked for printing entries. And we basically put together the basic references in his journals to bookmaking. And that was a wonderful excuse to make a book. And I printed ten copies on handmade paper, specially bound. (laughs) And it's original. It's original. And, you know, I'd love it if somebody would take it someday and scan the pages and make a trade edition because... With one exception, and it was a slightly repetitive entry, and I regret now not putting it in, but that's basically how his mind worked on a day-to-day basis. He was a visionary. He was so passionate. Books were spiritual. The ideal book, the book Beautiful, was something that you strive toward. The book was God. And, you know, it's no joke, although I don't think it was very accurately translated, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Mm -hmm. Whatever the biblical quotation is, that's how he felt about books. Well, the book is a presentation of the word. Exactly. In in a way that, well, I guess that's the debate, is what impact does the presentation have? If the presentation helps you appreciate the word, whatever that word is, Mm -hmm. then you've done your job.
and it'll be very interesting down the road to see if e-readers and reading devices can uh, can go the the route. It's at a very very early stage, and I certainly don't need to get involved with the uh, Kindles or Kobo's or anything else. I don't want to. There's nothing exciting or tactile about holding a mm-hmm. a reader, but the form allows you to enlarge type very quickly, mm-hmm. which is great if you've got bad eyesight. It's another way of reading. And someone has suggested that you know the iPad generation and the the Twitter brains that go with it will not be able to read uh, with the depth mm-hmm. that book readers will. Yeah. I don't know. Contemplation and the, the, the yeah. contemplation. I can't imagine reading Bleak House um, on a Kindle. Yeah. I think that's asking a lot. But for information, I can see it. If you're in a subway, I can see it. It yeah. takes up less space. It just doesn't, for me, have the excitement. And also because I'm having the fun of making my own books, I can choose things like this uh, marble paper, which has a different feel from the spine, and enjoy it. But I'm, you know, I may be the last of the breed, or among the last of the breed. Artists will probably be able to save the codex form as it, you know, it diminishes. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's ever going to go away, but then we never thought that buggy whips would go away either. Mm-hmm. Someone out there must be baking buggy whips for buggies. <laughs> there are yeah. buggies around. Yeah. The ATAC tape is no longer with us. It's hard to know because we are so technology-oriented and so image-oriented. We're not print-oriented. We're not letterpress-oriented. But somehow the craft has survived this first gen, it seems to me, survived this sort of first generation challenge. I know there is a real interest in the whole letterpress printing activity. It's, it's as popular as ever, uh, apparently. Yeah, I think... It's I, difficult to buy these letterpress uh, printing presses. You used to be able to get them for not a whole heck of a lot of money, but now it's hard to find five Well, I got mine for $500 a thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, there's still a place in... Colorado, I can't remember, that has parts for Vandercook presses. But they will be going under one of these days. Hot metal type is not being cast. Jim Rimmer, who was a not close but good friend of mine, died a year and a half ago. He was the last of the great type founders in Canada. There will be a few monotype casters still running. My friend Paul Dunsing died eight years ago, seven years ago. He was designing and casting his own type casting for people. So much of my collection of type was cast by Paul Dunsing, and he was a great mentor, and um, nobody's going to be doing it. They ran a course in the summer called Monotype University, I think, in West Virginia, and all these freaks who love to hear the, the sound of the machines clanking would go, and they'd learn to cast type, you know, from the experts. I don't know how many of these people are around anymore. Mm-hmm. I was always amused because it sounded like someone who just, you know, has this Ferrari and just turns it on to hear what the sound of the motor is like. It doesn't ever have to leave the road, you know, leave the shop. But there were some very, very sincere people who could conceivably cast type for people who would print from it. They just loved casting type. So those days are pretty well gone. I think it now is really is... I'm jumping around, but I think in the 60s when I started, we saw the writing on the wall. The University of Toronto Press got rid of its letterpress equipment, and probably as late as the 1980s, I was able to buy some some type and some equipment from the press because it was just it was all over for letterpress. But at that point in the early 80s, it really was shifting from commercial 
to personal printing, certainly in California. And equipment was around, was available. Type was still available. Wood type was still available. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of Don Black in Scarborough, mm -hmm. who um, I think is still selling uh, letterpress equipment at a considerable price. But he, every once in a while, he has some type. I bought as much as I could from Don Black who bought it from University of Toronto Press. Speaking with Will Reuter of the Aliquando Press in Dundas, Ontario, you mentioned this beautiful book on the journals of Cobden Sanderson as being one of those that you're most proud of. I guess you love all of your children in different ways. Uh, no, I don't love all of my children. <laughs> There's some children I wish had never been born. <laughs> I would say the first ten years of... Uh, the Aliquando <laughs> Press <laughs> were interesting because I had a truly terrible press to work on. Mm. It was impossible to get enough impression. The type that I was using wasn't particularly good. I was mashing it. You learn from experience. And there were a few people I could talk to. Stan Bevington, as they say, was quite knowledgeable about uh, letterpress, even though he was switching to offset. But it's, I still don't consider myself a great printer. But on a good day, if I'm lucky and everything goes well... Um, I can get a reasonable approximation of printing from the press. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in some ways in setting type, which is like knitting. It's just row after row of individual characters. You know, you, pr you put them on the press, you print them, then you distribute them back in the case, and then you start all over again. The book that uh, you have, Order, Majesty, and Beauty, was about 18 months in the works, and that was a lot of printing. Yeah, I'm proud of it because I was able to reprint what I considered very important text, bring it out into the world in a slightly different form. And that maybe is what's important to collectors, to be able to find new versions of work. It's always exciting when you find a completely new copy, original copy, that only you can do justice to, you think, and you're able to produce, say, as many as 50 or 60 copies, hoping that two or three people will buy some of those 50 or 60 copies. I have boxes and boxes of books in my studio that haven't sold, and some of those are the bad children <laughs> that I wish had never been born. <laughs> but uh, Orphans. Orphans, they're orphans. I, I, I do not acknowledge their existence. But you know, the book that you're working on at the moment, once you get started, does not excite you as much as the, the book after the book down the road. I think you're always thinking ahead. And again, I don't know what collectors look for. I think hopefully they're interested in beautiful books, well-produced, well-set, physically intriguing. There are many forms of, of books. The Codex book that we've lived with since the 4th century uh, is still, to my mind, the most practical. You know, all of those papyrus scrolls could be sort of mushed together in a smaller area, and all of this knowledge can now be mushed onto a a smartphone, <laughs> but it ain't the same, baby, <laughs> no matter how many leather, uh, pseudo-leather cases they make, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just not quite the same as opening, because I think you read more slowly when you're reading a book, a codex book, and you, t you, you savor it a little more, but you know, accordion fold books, there are so many forms that have evolved from the codex, or are similar to the codex, so that um, when I'm doing a book, I try to use different structures, different forms, when I can. When it's, again, if the form seems appropriate to the book, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a codex. I do a lot of broadsides for my own fun, and that's just to try different uh, type uh, combinations and to do maybe a single quote 
poem by Emily Dickinson or something like that, just to see how it would look in 54-point Palatino, for example, with a nice wood engraving. And maybe that idea will gel and come out, you know, 10 years down the road into something. The mere fact here that you're talking about printing and books, the arts and craft of printing, have you chosen those kinds of texts? I think initially I chose literary works that I thought would be important. Mm. When I was at OCI, I had a relatively small amount of type, Mm. so it was interesting to do poetry because you can set a couple of pages of poetry and still have some characters in the case. As I acquired, you know, larger quantities, text pages of prose made it easier. The text itself becomes very important. But I've done a number of books on music. I love printing bilingually, parallel languages. And why does that please Because you? language language looks different. Yeah. It's like watching the girl with the dragon tattoo, which I watched the other night. Great if you can see it dubbed, but so much nicer if you can follow the subtitles and listen to the, the Swedish, which is a beautiful language. Mm-hmm. There are some similarities between Swedish and Dutch, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Swedish, I think, is a little less guttural than Dutch, but I loved hearing it, even though I couldn't always read the subtitles. Mm-hmm. This is a book of poetry by Walter von der Vogelweide, who I believe was 12th century, and I'll just pass that over to you. And here we have pairs of pages. Yes, and it's interesting. You've given a, with, you've um, given a, a Germanic look, if you will, to the German, and a, a very, well, I don't know what type this is. It looks like kind of that Roman. Yeah, it's a sort of classic Roman light form. Actually, yeah. it's a German design by an American designer just before the Second World War. But very British. But very, yeah, but very English. And the other typeface is uh, Jessenschrift which was designed by Rudolf Koch in the 1920s. And they both, because it's, it's basically a German type, it was just nice to play one off against the other. Yeah, the yeah. line lengths are different, the words are different, but I can't imagine one language without the other. And that gets into the whole messy business of translation, because you never can translate accurately. But you can give a sense, I think, of what happens in another language. Part of the problem, too, is that um, when you're setting bilingually, it's hard sometimes to have enough accents to do the work justice. But this is the sort of book that I think a private press could do, and that maybe a collector might find interesting. Perhaps I could get you to put on your salesman's hat. <laughs> Looking at the wrong person, fella. <laughs> well, I'd like you to, to, to pitch some of the books, maybe the ones that you find easiest to pitch. Oh, my God. There are so many recent books that are more or less out of print. I, I would find it very difficult to... I'm sorry. I don't think I can pitch my own work. <laughs> okay. But okay. anybody who's interested, I have a, a website, and the okay. website will have to do it for me. This is a private press. It's not a commercial undertaking. Mm. I don't consider myself a publisher, but I have to make public something that is relatively private. In terms of various authors. Spinoza is important to you. I've never printed long texts by Spinoza, but I love that quotation. All that is excellent is as difficult as it is rare. <laughs> Just about sums up private printing and the, the insanity. Spinoza is important. Some of the, uh, I think Chris Spinelstead would say, the literary canon. Shakespeare, Wordsworth, all the, the people, basically, that Cobb and Sanderson was printing. Yeah. And to some degree, William Morris. But I think you also have a responsibility to print contemporary texts. Yeah. And that's where I think, in an ideal situation, contemporary poetry, because there's some really good stuff out there, you could be printing broadsides if you didn't want to do whole books. Poetry doesn't sell. 
poetry, I don't know, is always collectible, but it's very important, and it's relatively easy to do with a small amount of type. Have you sought out uh, or found any contemporary poets? Well, Jan Schreiber, whose uh, translation of uh, Walter von der Vogelweide occasionally sends me a manuscript. Mm -hmm. He's a very, very good poet. Um, I'm working on a book right now, which will take me all of this year, and probably well into next year for my 50th anniversary, uh, some texts on the private press, because I want to have a, a sort of summation of what I've been doing, what some other people have thought. I won't say too much, because I'm highly superstitious, sure. but um, I hope that it will be reasonably important. It won't be as thick a book as the uh, Carbon Sanderson, but it will be more, much the same format. So it'll be a sort of a, a book of, of interesting quotes? There will be quotes that I will print in many colors, I hope, mm. as part of the text. Quotes about the private press. Four essays about the private press in its various aspects, and then I'll write an afterward trying to catch some of the bits that might not have been covered, and also explain the provenance of the texts and the importance of the authors to me, because um, I am very much aware of you know, where I come from, the shoulders that I'm uh, you know, standing on, and the movement itself, which is just amazing. It's astonishing what some private presses have achieved. It's a very exciting time, I think, if you can maintain your own press and maintain it with a certain seriousness. I also think you have to be really lighthearted sometimes and say, screw it, you're being a silly bugger. <laughs> Lighten up! <laughs> you mentioned the word obsessive, yeah. and that there is this obsession to get it right. So I think if you're going to do this, if you're going to buy equipment, invest in paper, scrounge type, you have a terrible responsibility always to yourself to do the very best that you can, and to give the very best that you can as an expression of the text to the reader, because the reader is what it's about. You are the steward of the word, and you have that responsibility. Incidentally, I'd like to put in my order for a copy of your forthcoming book. If I, could, right I will now. be very happy to put your name. You'll be the first on the list. Finally, then, I tried to get you to be a salesperson, and that didn't, didn't work. And you don't love all your children to the same degree. I didn't get the children that you love the most. It's very hard for me to look at my own work. <laughs> Obviously, the Cobden Sanderson book has special meaning for me because I worked bloody damn hard on it. I got some help from some very dear friends. The paper was a wallpaper that my great-uncle in Amsterdam designed probably around 1900. It was just enough to cover boards, and I thought, here, you know, again, something from the period is going back to a subject of the period. I'm quite proud of that book. This is a book that I did with Wesley Bates, Emblemata Amatoria. I'll just grab a few. Sure. Like. Maybe that's the best way to do it. A lot of these are out of print, so they're not going to help you very much. Meaning they've been sold out? They've been sold out. Some not. Okay, very quickly. Five Fables by Pilpay, which is sold out, was done with lino cuts. So look at the detail of that. By someone who came to University Press, Toronto Press, trying to sell herself as a freelancer. Her work was very good, but we couldn't use her. I said, are you interested in lending me some lino blocks? I wrote the text for this and uh, had a lot of fun doing it. So that's one I'm proud of. This is one I'm really, really proud of. The Anguish of the Heron by Gétien Soucy. Sheila Fishman, who uh, worked at U of T Press and is an excellent translator. Multi-Governor General. Multi-Governor General. 
We have a mutual friend, and she phoned me and said, I have this wonderful book, and I've just translated it. And so I got to print the English version before the French was printed. And it's a very interesting novella, and it was a real challenge, and I did my own wood engravings for it. I had a lot of fun with it. I also did the paper decorating, and I'm very proud of that. And the author was pleased, so yay! Uh, the Nuns and the Gardener by Boccaccio. This was a project that uh, Wesley Bates and I talked about, and we were going to do three stories by Boccaccio, all slightly naughty. But there is a bit of a history of private presses and naughtiness, isn't <laughs> oh, there? Oh, there's, there's private presses doing <laughs> erotic and homoerotic work and politically subversive work. Yes. The Dutch are very good at this, and that's a whole separate story. But you're able to get away with it because it's artistic. Yeah. yeah. This is a typeface that uh, Jim Rimmer designed, based on a 15th century face, and uh, Wesley did these rather interesting mm, engravings. Yeah, we were going to do three Boccaccio stories, do some extra copies, and then bind all three from the extra copies into one book, but it's one of those unfortunate projects that, that uh, just didn't come off. I'm very sorry, in retrospect, as I was at the time, but uh, we all lead our separate lives and we have our own rhythms. But I'm very, very proud of this book, and I'm very proud of the engravings that Wes did, because... Uh, they really are quite uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Again, very quickly, this is one I'm very proud of, too. Orvieto, poem by Jan Schreiber. It's an accordion full oh, book yes. that will oh. open up and do anything you want it to. You can sit inside. Again, I'm trying to hold back on the typography. This is an instance where I could have full reign with the engravings, but I hope they don't take away from the poem. As I say, there are many ways of doing a, a book, and it doesn't always have to be the codex form. And last, a book that I did many years ago, but this is probably fairly experimental, using every typeface that I could find. And it's called Books, Books, Books. Books, Books, Books. And when you open it up, it's called a waving leaf structure. And you can literally fan yourself with it. But lots of quotes about books, using the full arsenal. Julian Barnes, here we are. If all your responses to a book have already been duplicated and expanded upon by a professional critic then what point is there to your reading? Only that it's yours. The very last is the kind of book that I like doing, which, again, is similar to books, books, books. This was a collection of aphorisms from a sign put up by the English people uh, coming into Toronto. So every time I went in, I'd take a notebook and copy uh, down the, yeah. the aphorism of the day. <laughs> Again, using whatever I could, so just playing around with type and cuts from the shop and this and that and the other thing. Some words to live by. Here's one. Whenever prosperity comes, do not use all of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that gives us a really good selection of books and shapes and sizes and formats. Yeah, but I hope I haven't gone, in any of these, gone too far from the purpose, which is the word and the reader and the printer, private press, whatever, as the intermediary. Mm-hmm. Because it's so important that we don't get in the way. Well, thanks for getting in my way today. It's been uh, terrific to learn more about you and your press, and uh, best of luck in the next 30, 40 years. <laughs> oh, would that it were so. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nigel. That's very good of you. Thanks. I've been speaking with Will Reuter, who is the founder of the Alicondo Press, uh, based in uh, Dundas, Ontario.